We've looked forward to this weekend for a long time. And uh, we, we have a very, very special guest speaker. I don't know about you, but I love to watch TV shows like Dateline on NBC or 48 Hours on, on CBS. I love to watch how they examine the evidence and solve crimes. Well, our guest speaker, his name is Jay Warner Wallace. He's a repeat guest on Dateline. He's a homicide detective in Los Angeles. He's solved many, uh, many uh, crimes. But he's also written several books examining the evidence for the, for the Christian faith. I got to hear him speak about a year ago, and it, it fascinated me. I found it so powerful and helpful. I thought to myself, I would love, I wish he would come to River Glen. And so we contacted him, and I'm so glad that he said yes. And so would you join me, and let's give a big welcome to Jay Warner Wallace. Good morning. Um, I came all the way from Los Angeles. I was saying last night when I got here, I think you had good weather for about a week, right? And then we had rain yesterday. And it was 93 at home yesterday. And I thought, I'm kind of glad to be in the cooler weather, to be honest with you. I've been in that part of the world uh, for over 26 years working investigations of one kind or another in Los Angeles County. If you watch Dateline or you watch some of these crime shows, uh, a lot of our cases are on national television. As a matter of fact, I think I've been on uh, Dateline still more than any other detective in the country. And all the cases that I did that ended up on Dateline are cold cases. Those are just unsolved murders. There's no statute of limitations on a murder. So if they don't go solved in the first decade, we can come back later. And my cases are usually from 1979 to about 1988. Now, during much of the time that I was working as a detective, I was not a Christian. I didn't have any Christians in my family. Wasn't raised that way. Wasn't really interested. As a matter of fact, the Christians I did know, I didn't have a lot of respect for, if I'm honest with you. Sad, huh? And I ended up looking at the Gospels only because my wife was interested in going to church. So I said, I'm happy to go with you as an atheist. My dad still does that. And so I said, okay, I'll go. And the pastor that day pitched Jesus as a wise ancient sage, the smartest man who ever lived, upon whose teaching entire Western civilization has been built. And here I was enforcing the laws of the Western civilization and thinking, really, is Jesus the source of these laws? Let me get a Bible and see. So I started reading through the Gospels, and I'm going to show you today what I discovered. And that is really why I became a Christian those, that many years ago. And my son is now doing the same job that I did for years. He's wearing the same uniform I wore, works for the same agency, using the same tools that I used before him. He has my name, and so we're not very creative with names. We use the same name over and over and over again. And in fact, I was doing the same job that my dad did before me at the same agency with the same name. So if you've called our agency since 1961 and asked for Jim Wallace, there's been somebody there to answer the phone. So we make sure we have a Jim Wallace. Now, this kid just got married two weeks ago. And do you think he feels any pressure? Oh, yeah. I've already told him he has to have a kid with my name. <laughs> right? And that kid's got to become a cop. <laughs> we got to go four generations on this. The best Wallace cop is not on this screen. That's going to be my daughter, Mia, because she is right now in the Marine Corps as an MP. And when she comes out and she becomes a cop, trust me, 
she is a sneaky pathological liar. She'll be a great cop. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make here is that you can go later on after today. We're going to kind of shallowly get into some material that I've written about more extensively at coldcasechristianity.com, okay? And, and that's also, we have a phone app you can download for your Android or your iPhone. And all the stuff that's on our website is actually on this phone app. It's free. And you can watch, even the video of the today's presentation is available online to watch on your phone app. Also, if you want to reach me afterwards, I'm on all the social media platforms. I've been posting the last couple of days. Some of you are even here today because you saw those, multi, uh, those uh, social media posts. So that's how you can reach me. Now, last year I was asked to appear in a movie called God's Not Dead 2. And they gave me about six minutes to make a case for the reliability of Scripture. It's hard to make a case in six minutes. I don't like doing it. It never seems to really come out well, Right? And so what I try to do is abbreviate the stuff I've written about in this book, which is what we're going to try to do together right now. Now, before I can show you that there are actually good evidential reasons to believe that Christianity is true, I'm going to have to teach you something about evidence to begin with. So let's do a case together, and I'll teach you about the two forms of evidence we use in cases. There are only two forms of evidence. There is direct evidence and indirect evidence. This young man has been accused of, of killing his girlfriend with this baseball bat. How do we make a case against him? Well, we can make the case directly or indirectly. Direct evidence is of one kind, only one kind. Are you ready? Eyewitness testimony. That's it. Everything else is indirect evidence. There's another name for indirect evidence. It's called circumstantial evidence. Now, when I use that word circumstantial evidence, I bet most of you are thinking that's crummy evidence, right? That's the kind of weak evidence that you don't want to have a case made on. You've heard the expression, it was just a circumstantial case. All they have is circumstantial evidence. How many times have you heard that expression? It's because we have a sense in our culture that a circumstantial case is not as strong as a direct evidence case. And that is not true. 85% of cases nationwide of any kind are entirely circumstantial. We have very few cases where we have an eyewitness who can say, I saw him do it and I can identify him. A lot of those cases don't even go to trial. They're pled out because they're such strong cases, right? So if we're going to make the case against this guy, we need to know, we need a witness if we want to make it directly. Well, couldn't you argue that he is in a, some sense, he is a witness, I mean, he was there. He tells you he was there, so I guess you saw it. We could just interview him. But do you think we could trust what this guy's going to tell us? That's the problem. We need another kind of impartial witness, maybe somebody who was across the street who saw the whole thing, and she can tell us what happened. As a matter of fact, she says on the day of the murder, she heard her neighbor arguing with her boyfriend, and she's known this neighbor for years. But on this day, as they're arguing across the street, she looks through the plate glass window and she sees that the woman who lives across the street from her is being struck by her boyfriend. Not just arguing with him, she pun he punches her several times. And then when he, she falls to the ground, he gets a baseball bat out and starts beating her with it. And he runs to his car and he drives off. I mean, you saw all that? She says, yeah, I saw it. Well, do you know who this guy is? Oh, yeah. Oh, you know him? Yeah. Well, how do you know him? Well, he grew up in this neighborhood with my neighbor. They've been dating since they were this tall. We've known these kids forever. 
We are a close community. We have uh, block parties together and holidays, Thanksgiving we sometimes celebrate. As a matter of fact, on the day of the murder, this guy was wearing the shirt that she says she gave him for Christmas two years ago. That's a decent witness, would you agree? She not only knows him, he's wearing clothes that she gave him. If you have this kind of a witness, I could make this case with one piece of evidence, her eyewitness testimony. If we did that, this would be called a direct evidence case. Are we clear? But what if on the day of the murder, he is not wearing the shirt that she gave him for Christmas? And as a matter of fact, on the day of the murder, the killer is wearing a mask on his head, so she cannot even identify who it is. Now all she can say is, well, he's about the right size and shape of my neighbor's boyfriend, but I couldn't tell you for sure if it was him because I couldn't see his face. Would you guys be willing to convict this poor guy on that testimony? I don't think so. Let's do something more now. Now we no longer have a direct evidence case. She cannot identify the suspect. She cannot help us. We have to make the case a different way. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to knock on the door. Knock on the door and we ask him, what were you doing yesterday on the day of the murder? He says, well, I was out drinking with two of my buddies. Really? Okay. What are your friends' names? We go out, we interview his friends. He's lying. They haven't seen him in weeks. He is now lying about his alibi. And he fits the general description. Are you guys convinced that he's our guy? How many of you think right now that he is our guy? Raise your hand. Come on, raise your hand if you think he's our guy. Okay, a couple of you. I always say that if you're in California, nobody ever raises their hand in California, okay? It's just the difference between California and Wisconsin. In Texas, he's already on death row, okay? <laughs> That's just the difference between Wisconsin and Texas. But we'll do a search warrant at his house, and we discover in the search warrant that he's got a baseball bat in his closet. Now, everyone's got a baseball bat in their closet or somewhere in their house probably, but this guy's baseball bat is different. On the thick part of the bat... It's all nicked up and dinged up, like it's been used for something other than hitting baseballs, like it's been used as a club. And when we do a biological search for evidence on the baseball bat, well, it's, there's no evidence because he has soaked his baseball bat in bleach. Now, why would anyone soak their bat in bleach unless they're trying to destroy biological evidence, right? So now we have a soaked, bleached baseball bat, a B.O. alibi, and he fits the general description. But there's more. At the search warrant, we also discover a pair of Levi's. And the Levi's, when we test them with a chemical called luminol, they glow. Luminol only reacts and luminesces during the presence of biological fluids, blood, or some detergents will also luminesce. And these are luminescing at the knees. They are dirty and covered in dirt and mud and stains, but at the knees they are luminescing. We test them for biological material and blood is not blood. Because whatever it is he did, he successfully cleaned them with detergent. He spot cleaned them. Now the detergent is still there, but there's no other material. But what is he cleaning? The pants are covered in dirt. If it's dirt he's trying to get off, he'd have to do the whole set of pants. He didn't do that. He specifically targeted something around the knees to clean. Hmm, what could that be? So now we have bleached bat, B.O. alibi, spot clean pants, and he fits the general description. And there's no sign of forced entry at the house, none. Whoever got into this house did not have to kick a window, break a window, kick a door, got in without 
either they knew the person who let them in, knew the victim, or they had a key to get in. Only three people have a key. The victim, the victim's mother who passed away about two months earlier had a key, and the victim's crazy boyfriend's got a key. And he'll tell you he's a crazy boyfriend. In a taped interview, he says that he does occasionally lose his temper. He doesn't like that part of himself, but he has a bad temper, and he, he does yell at her. He'll even tell you that he has struck her on occasion. And afterwards, he always apologizes. He always tries to make good on it, and she always forgives him because she understands his bad temper. And he does admit that on the day of the murder, he lost his patience. He started screaming at her. He threatened to kill her. He even says he punched her because he found out on that day that she was cheating on him. God, who would cheat on this gentleman here? And so he lost his temper. But he says, I didn't kill her. Okay, stop right here for a second. Dad's in the room. Just the dad's in the room. If this is your daughter who's the victim of this crime, do you guys think this is our guy? Now, the witness says when he ran out of the house, she saw he had these work boots. They were weird work boots. They had a, a vertical kind of piece of leather on the side of the outside of the work boot. And it was kind of strange to her to see that. You do some research, there's only one manufacturer who makes a boot that looks like that. It's not very popular. They've only sold about 30 pairs in two years. But who do you think's got one of those 30 pairs in his closet? Our guy. Also, if you'd have gotten there just 15 minutes later, he would have been dead because he was planning on the day of the search warrant to kill himself. We know that because we find a partially completed suicide note on the counter. And that suicide note says that on the day of the murder, he did something so horrific that he cannot forgive himself. He had no choice. He, over, he, he lost his temper, and now he's done something he can't reverse, and he can't live with himself, so he wants to kill himself. But because you got there a little bit too soon, he didn't finish that note. Nowhere in that note does he say that he killed his girlfriend. The witness also says that when he drove away, he was in an unusual car. Well, what was it? It was like a 72 to 74, like an early 70s Volkswagen Carmen Ghia. Yellow. Now, how many of you in this room even know what a Carmen Ghia looks like? Raise your hand if you know that. Okay, everyone else, these are the old people in the room. Just take a look around. <laughs> Pretty easy to identify them. Young people have no idea what that is, but you do a DMV search, there's only like three or four operational Carmen Gias anywhere in the county. It doesn't say on the DMV report what color they are, but you do the search warrant at his house, you raise the garage door, what do you think he's got in the garage? He's got himself a 1972 yellow Volkswagen Carmen Gia. That's what they look like, by the way. Now, at this point, I think it's fair for us to ask the question, isn't it possible that he's still innocent? Yes, of course. Of course it's possible, but anything and everything is possible. We don't care about possible. We only care about reasonable because the standard of proof is not beyond a possible doubt. It's beyond a reasonable doubt. That's a little lower. There's nothing that you really know beyond a possible doubt except for your own existence right now. And even this experience you're having this morning could be a dream. You could still be dreaming from last night. You might still be in your bed. That's at least possible. But it's not reasonable. And that's why we don't care about possible. We only care about reasonable. When we tell jurors, if they're going to start speculating, it's called speculation, about possibilities in the jury room, knock that off. That's not allowed. 
you can only reasonably infer from evidence, not speculate about what's possible. Now look, defense attorneys will find a way to try to explain those eight pieces, trust me. They'll say, oh, I can explain this some other way. But it turns out there's one common causal explanation for all of the evidence. Either the stars are perfectly aligned so that eight coincidences make him happen to look guilty, or in fact, he's just incredibly guilty. These are the two choices. Now, what we just did here is build a case on nothing but indirect evidence. This is a circumstantial evidence case. In the book, I draw it this way. This is from Cold Case Christianity. Here's how it's drawn. Now, I would never really do a case with just eight pieces of evidence in front of a jury. There'd be 80 pieces of evidence that point to the same reasonable suspect. The more you have, the more reasonable the inference. I call this death by a thousand paper cuts. Make sense? One of these doesn't seem like much, but if you get enough of these, you're in trouble. And that's what happens here. Now, I actually prefer a circumstantial case to a direct evidence case for two reasons. Number one, judges actually instruct juries to treat the two forms of evidence as entirely equal. Here's the jury instruction in California. Both direct and circumstantial evidence are acceptable types of evidence. Neither is entitled to any greater weight than the other. Did you know that? So stop saying it's just a circumstantial case unless you're willing to say it's just a direct evidence case. You got a DNA case, a fingerprint case? Those are indirect cases. That's a circumstantial case. Really? DNA is, yes, DNA is circumstantial evidence. So keep in mind, these are very powerful forms of evidence. The other reason why I like these kinds of cases that I work is that witnesses lie. Direct evidence cases are tricky because witnesses often lie. Now, that indirect evidence, it's not going to try to deceive me. I might misinterpret it, but it's not because the indirect evidence is trying to deceive me. In a direct evidence case, often the witness is trying to deceive me. So I've learned not to trust witnesses. I never trust witnesses. Instead, I test witnesses. And if they pass the test, then I trust them. Well, what's the test? Well, in criminal trials, it's built on four major areas, and here they are. I'll make it easy for us. Give it to you in single words, okay? If a witness was really present when he says he was to see what he said he saw, if he can be verified in some way, if he's been honest and accurate and hasn't changed his story over time, and if he doesn't possess a bias that would cause him to lie to you, you are to accept his testimony. Really? Well, you know what? I don't like the way that guy looked. He's got little beady eyes, you know? He's, he's got, it just doesn't seem like he's telling me the truth. He's kind of like Paul Ryan, you know? I, oh, I just had to say that for you Wisconsin people. <laughs> Hey, it's Ted Cruz when I'm in Texas, okay? I just pick whatever the center, yeah, I just yeah, go with it, all right? The point is, even if you don't like the guy, and you don't like the way he looks, and he reminds you of somebody you know who's a liar, does he pass the test? Yeah, then trust him. So I started thinking, why did I teach you all of this? Because we're about to now apply this the way that I did. I started thinking as an atheist who was looking at the Gospels, could you apply this test to the authors of Scripture? And if you did, would they pass the test? Let's see. First area is were they really present? 
This is my dad working a case from 1974. It was a case that occurred in 1972. He hates that picture of himself there. I think it's great. We were talking last night about how no one in this generation has just a mustache with no other facial hair. Okay? As a matter of fact, one of us shaved off his mustache last night after that presentation. Amen, it's gone. He got rid of it. Because, seriously, think about it. You know everyone's got a goatee or a full beard. If you have just a mustache, raise your hand. Raise your hand. My, proves my point. Three old guys. Four old guys. What, am I, what can I say? Shave off the mustache or grow a goatee. Those are your two choices. Anyway, point away. So I always tease my dad about this picture, but he's walking a guy across to the courtroom who was accused of killing a little girl, 10-year-old girl, on Thanksgiving Day in 1972. It was a sad case, and the, the confession that he confessed to this detective here and to this detective who has this really cool sideburn right there, a thousand-page transcript, horrific. Everything he said he did, how he killed her, what he did with her body, it was terrible. None of it is true. He wasn't even there. But he got more attention than he'd ever gotten in his entire life from these two people, and he was willing to tell them anything. So we cleared him on the eve of the trial, and this is a still open, unsolved case. You can't be the killer if you weren't there. <laughs> but you also can't be a witness if you weren't there. And that was my suspicion about the gospel authors. You have this event called the ministry of Jesus, and then you have this courtroom, really. This, it's the, where the uh, first Christians kind of came together, early Christians came together to decide which canonical accounts, which gospels can we trust about Jesus and include in the canon. That is called the Council of Laodicea, and it is 330 years after the event. That's a long time, folks. If the gospels were written late in history... They cannot be called eyewitness testimony. They might include some truth, but they couldn't have been written by eyewitnesses because they've been dead for 300 years. Do you see the problem? Now, there are skeptics who have written a lot about this. One of them is Bart Ehrman, who have either made claims that they were written late in history or that they were corrupted over time. I needed to know for the first question, were these written early enough to have been written by people who were really there to see what they said they saw? Also, if you're going to lie about Jesus, you want to do it late when everyone's dead and has no, they can't cross, you know, fact check you. It's hard to lie in the region early enough when people who would know better would know if you're lying. As a matter of fact, the closer we can date these, to the actual events, the more reliable they become. Now, I actually think that they're dated over here. But I want to show you why we're going to build the case with indirect evidence. This is why I taught you about indirect evidence, right? There is a book written by Luke called the Book of Acts. Have you guys read it? Okay, that book, Luke writes about the first century and what happened in the first century in the area around Jerusalem and elsewhere. And he writes about everything and he leaves out certain details. This is a very thorough guy. But nowhere in the book of Acts will you see him ever describe the destruction of the temple. Why not? Remember, Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple in the Gospels. Wouldn't you want to include it in the book of Acts to show that he is an accurate predictor? 
for people who don't know anything about Jerusalem? Well, then why not mention it? It's missing. So is the siege, which is a horrific period of time, about one or two years preceding the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. That's also missing. As a matter of fact, we know when Paul died and how he died. Yet both when he died and how he died is missing from Luke's gospel, Luke's uh, book of Acts. Weird, huh? He mentions Stephen's death. Why not mention Paul is a big, important person in the book of Acts? Why not mention how he dies? He doesn't mention how Peter dies about the same time, also in Rome. Why not mention that? These are the two most important people in the book of Acts. You mention how Stephen dies. You mention how James, the brother of John, that is a true nobody. Sorry, James, you are a nobody in that sense. Why, not, why would you mention him but not mention Peter and Paul? As a matter of fact, James, the brother of Jesus, we know when he died and how he died in Jerusalem. But Luke says nothing about this. These are without a doubt the three most important people in the book of Acts, and Luke is silent about them. Why? Why is all of this stuff missing? Well, if he wrote the book of Acts before any of this stuff happened... That would explain why it's not written about yet. So let's date the book of Acts just one year prior to the first missing event. I could easily have dated it 10 years prior, but I'm going to stay right here. We, we know for sure that uh, we know that James, the brother of John, he was martyred around 44. So that's in the book of Acts. So somewhere between 44 and 60 is when we're looking for a writing period here. But... There's another book that Luke wrote. This is not a trick question. Luke wrote two books, the book of Acts and Luke. Yeah, Luke. Come on now. Don't make Ben get embarrassed about this. You should know the book of Luke and the book of Acts, right? But which one did he write first? Luke. And we know that, so we have to date Luke a little earlier. So how do we date? Now, you see what we're doing here? We're walking backwards in time. Now, how do I know that that's 53? Why do I think it's 53? I'll show you. First of all, I know it comes first because in the first verse of the book of Acts, he tells Theophilus that he wrote another book first. That's Gospel of Luke. But we also have internal evidence. You might have been reading over and not paying attention. I want you to pay more attention to word choices. Here, for example, in Paul's letter to Timothy, it's around the early 60s. Paul says to Timothy, hey, take care of your, your church leaders because they deserve to be compensated for all their hard work. And Paul says, I know this because my Bible tells me so. Really? Yeah. He says, the scripture says, his Bible says, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. That's from Deuteronomy, Old Testament. But then he includes this verse, the worker deserves his wages. Where does that come from? That's not in the Old Testament. That he is quoting from the New Testament. He's quoting that from the Gospel of Luke. So we know that he is already considering Luke's gospel as available. It's already been written. And he's calling it scripture as early as the early 60s. But it's better than that. Because when he writes to the Corinthian church about how they should do the Lord's Supper, he also quotes from Luke's gospel. Here he's talking about how Jesus said to do this in remembrance of me. That is an expression that's only found in Luke's gospel. It's a much bigger piece of Luke's gospel. And by the way, he's telling this group to return to the way I taught it to you earlier. He, we think he probably planted the Corinthian church around 51. 
So how early was he teaching from Luke's gospel in the early 50s? But that means Luke's gospel has to be available in the early 50s. It's written early. Also, you'll notice in the first verse of Luke's gospel, Luke says that he's not an eyewitness. He interviewed the eyewitnesses. He's like a good detective. And he says here, Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Okay, there are some optional words there. Remember, detectives, we love optional words. Words you don't have to use that you chose to use, and those are almost always adjectives and adverbs. Those are important to us. There are three here. Here's one. Carefully. I have carefully investigated. Why would he say it that way? He doesn't have to say carefully, but he is very careful. If you look at his gospel compared to the others in the book of Acts, oh my gosh, it's careful. Also, he uses this expression, most excellent Theophilus. This is the first book he wrote to Theophilus, so he starts with his formal title. This is a title that most of the time was a position of leadership in cities. So Theophilus is probably somebody important. And then this word, orderly. This means correct chronological uh, order. It's almost like saying, hey, I wrote a history of Jesus, and it's in the right order. Like, duh. Like, who would write a history that's not in the right order? I know it's in the, it starts with Jesus' birth. It ends with the ascension. I can figure out that it's in the right order. Why would he feel compelled to say that it's in the right chronological order? Well, because there's another even earlier account out there that's not in the right order. There's a first century bishop named Papias who says that Mark's gospel was written by Mark in Rome as Mark was listening to the preaching of Peter. And Papias says that Mark's gospel is accurate, if not orderly, and he uses the exact same Greek word. That makes sense to me because if you think about it, he's speaking to everybody, and he met Mark. And he quotes Mark more than any other source in the Gospel of Luke. Sometimes word for word he's quoting Mark. Only now he's got Mark's stuff in the right order. But that means that Mark's Gospel has got to be available to him. Do you see how close we are to the events now? We're too close. There are people who are still alive who would know if this whole thing is a hoax. And by the way, if I'm wrong by five years, it's still too early. If I'm wrong by 25 years, it's still too early. If I'm wrong by 35 years, and there's not a scholar, skeptic, or otherwise that says I'm that wrong, we're still too, too early. Oh, no, you can't trust testimony from 35 years after the fact. Oh, yes, you can. I do it all the time in cold cases. Why? Because not every memory is created equal. Listen to me. Men, how many of you remember what you did for your wife on Valentine's Day this year? Sad, right? Your wives don't remember either. That's sadder, okay? <laughs> but if I asked you, what did you do for your wife on Valentine's Day in 27, 2007? Who knows? If you asked me, what did you do for your, your wife on Valentine's Day in 27, I wouldn't know. But if you ask me, what did you do with, with your wife on Valentine's Day in 1988? Well, I can tell you that day because we waited about 10 years to get married, and that's the day we got married. So I remember that whole day. 
in vivid detail. Not every Valentine's Day is created equal for me. But the same is true for you. This is one of the best places in the world to fish, right? And if you were to go out fishing every day, if I asked you, how was the fishing on, on June 3rd, uh, 2013, you're like, I don't remember. They all blend together. But I guarantee you, if you're out fishing one day and a dude walks up to you on the water, you will remember that day. And all those details I can write about because I don't care how late it is, not every day of fishing is created equal. Same thing happens here. Now, I'm not going to talk about anything in the second category. This, by the way, is how we do timelines. We do this to make sure that a suspect is even available to do a crime. The same thing helps us in deciding whether or not the Gospels are dated early enough. We are going to skip this second section, but I'm going to send it to you. I'm going to send you the whole two-hour video of this talk so you can look at all of it, but we have to move fast this morning, okay? This is a two-hour talk in and of itself. But this is the one that really bothered me. Even if it's early, how do I know it wasn't changed over time? We had a guy we took to jail on another Dateline case. We had no idea how he killed his wife. He got rid of the body. 1981. We couldn't tell the jury how he killed her, when he killed her, where he killed her, how he got rid of her body. Those are important questions to a jury. They took four hours to find him guilty, though. Why? Because he lied and changed his story over time. And as he did that, he demonstrated that he was lying to us. When you change your story over time, there's a good reason to believe it's not true. So even if I could date this early, how do I know it hasn't changed before it gets to the canon of Scripture? Same thing happens, by the way, in crime scenes, right? I'll put a piece of evidence in the crime scene. Here's a casing. I'll bring it to court 30 years later. There it is. Now, I will tell you in trial, I will say, that, hey, you know what? That casing has an extractor pin mark on the casing. And that extractor pin mark is identified back to the suspect's gun. It matches the suspect's extractor pin. So we're going to use that as a piece of evidence to demonstrate that this guy's gun is the gun that was used in the murder. But you could ask, well, how do I know that the casing you have today is the same as the casing we had back in 1981? I mean, somebody could have come along 10 years after the fact, some detective, and pulled it out of property and carefully etched in the extractor pin mark and then put it back in property. And the people who follow him would have no idea that it had been altered. By the time I get to it 30 years later, I don't even realize I have a casing, the same casing, but it's been altered. Do you see the problem here? Same thing could happen with the scripture, right? I mean, we have this gospel, let's say the gospel of John. I don't care how early you think it was written. By the time it gets to the trial, to the council, how many times along the way has someone made a change? You know, the Jesus over here is a simple preaching rabbi. He brought, he's taught some good messages, but he never worked miracles. He never walked on water. He never rose from the dead. He was not born of a virgin. Those are details that were added over time. How many additions were made? I don't know. Could be thousands of additions. And by the time the people carry it into the council, it's a completely different document. This is what Bart Ehrman calls this in a book. He wrote a book this, uh, two books ago called How Jesus Became God. And this is his theory. Well, how would we test that? Let's show you how you test it in crime scenes. In real trials, we would say, hey, was there anybody there in 1981 who saw that casing at the crime scene? Some officer who either wrote a really good report about it. Does his report mention the extractor pin mark? Did he take a Polaroid? Do you guys even know what a Polaroid is? 
Do we have time to go through a Polaroid? Real quick Polaroid test. Okay, you think you know Polaroids? Okay, you guys know this Polaroid, right? Wait for it, wait for it, it develops. How many of you guys have actually used that kind of camera? Raise your hand. A lot of you. Okay, cool, cool. How about this one? Yeah, you couldn't touch it because it would mess it up, right? Raise your hand if you know that one. Slightly older group. How about this one? Yeah, they used to have a top on them. Raise your hand if you've used that kind of camera. Smaller group. How about this one? We used to put the solution on the film. Raise your hand if you know that one. Oh, my gosh. Pray for these people. This is the walking dead right here. <laughs> they could stroke out before we even finish this service. The point is, do we have somebody who took a Polaroid or wrote a report? Now, they're going to give it to someone like my dad. My dad would write another report, take another Polaroid, documenting that it has the extractor pin mark on it. Then he's going to bring it to the crime lab. They're going to take all kinds of photographs. They're going to give it to me. I'm going to write a, write a report. So I have report after report after report after report after report. And I can see if anyone's altered this feature of the casing. These are like links in a chain. And that's why we call this the chain of custody. In every significant piece of evidence in a criminal trial, you'll have to show the chain of custody. The only question is, is there a chain of custody for the New Testament? Yes, there is. Here's our crime scene. Here's our courtroom. The first officer at the scene, let's say, for example, John, he takes a picture of Jesus. But the question is, what is in his picture? Well, who did he give it to? We know who he gave it to. He had three personal students, Ignatius, Polycarp, and Papias. And so if you didn't know what John said about Jesus, you could just ask these guys, what did John teach you about Jesus? Well, how would you ask them? Well, it turns out they became leaders in the local churches. And they wrote letters to local congregations. They're not in your Bible, but we still have those letters. And we can see what John taught them. Make sense? Here, for a matter of fact, we've got, Ignatius is going to quote from three of the four Gospels and most of the letters of Paul. We don't have anything from Papias, but Polycarp wrote one letter to the church in Philippi, and in it, he's going to quote from all four Gospels and from almost all of Paul's letters. It turns out two of these guys, Ignatius and Polycarp, also had a student named Irenaeus. And Irenaeus, he writes a ton of stuff. He even makes a list of 24 New Testament books that he is using with his students. Don't let anyone tell you that the canon of Scripture is invented and made up at some church council in the 4th century. That's a lie. It is quoted immediately, assembled and listed hundreds of years before any church council. The church councils do not create the New Testament. The church councils simply recognize the New Testament that was being used for hundreds of years prior. Irenaeus' student is Hippolytus. He gets in some trouble and he dies in custody. I do believe that Origen, another church father, is the student of Hippolytus, but just in case I'm wrong, I'll leave it there. I actually, in the book, show you two more chains of custody, one from Paul through Otation, and one from Peter all the way through to the church council with Eusebius. If you didn't have any of the gospels we have today, but all you had were the first students of the gospel authors, what would you know about Jesus? Would he be simpler? Was the first version communicated to the, the students of the authors a simpler Jesus? No. You have the same Jesus we have today. 
born of a virgin, all the miracles, worked all that stuff, preached messages, died on a cross, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. You are stuck with Jesus. That's the first story, and it never changes over time, and it's written incredibly early. Last thing, of course, is bias. Maybe they're just biased to lie about it. They've got some reason to lie. We have a bar in our city called the Crest. It's a biker bar. People are always fighting in this bar. If you get there, you're going to have a bar fight with two drunk guys who are fighting each other. And this drunk guy wants that drunk guy to go to jail. And that drunk guy wants this drunk guy to go to jail. So who do you think goes to jail? Both go to jail. Because you don't know who's telling you the truth. Bias is really rooted in motive. What would motivate someone to lie? Well, there are only three reasons why anyone commits a murder. Only three. They're the same three reasons why anyone lies. The same three reasons why anyone commits a theft. The same three reasons why any of you in this room has ever sinned. You've only sinned for one of three reasons. That's it. There are only three reasons. Are you ready to hear them? You already know them. The first one's kind of obvious, right? It's financial greed. A lot of stupid stuff occurs for the love of money. Agreed? Second one is kind of similarly easy to figure out. That's lust, either relational or sexual lust. The third one is more nuanced, though, and it incorporates a bunch of stuff, and that is the pursuit of power. It's not always pursuit of, like, political power. If, if one gangster feels disrespected and shoots another gangster, why is he doing that? Because you disrespected me. Respect, authority, power. So the question becomes, if we're, we know now what is behind every lie ever told, this is it, we can ask the question, what's behind their lie? If this whole thing is a lie, what is behind it? Are they getting rich? No. Are they getting girlfriends? Probably not. But you could say, and most people will camp right here, most skeptics, no, this is about power, authority, respect. You know, Peter became somebody. Well, Paul wrote most of the New Testament. So Paul's a good example of how stupid that idea is, right? Paul starts off in a position of authority and respect as a religious Jew of the highest order who can draw papers to have Christians executed. So you're telling me Paul one day wakes up and says, you know, I think I'm going to jump out of this position of power, authority, and respect I have as a Jew and jump in with these new Christians so I can spend the next 25 years getting my behind kicked all over the known world, hoping to someday return to a position of authority and respect, the one I already have? Why, why would anyone do that? Remember, if you are a religious leader in the Christian movement in the first century, you're like this deer with this birthmark. <laughs> Bummer of a birthmark, Hal. It is. And Christians had that. You know how these 12 died, right? For what they said was true. Now listen, if you all said that you were willing to die for your Christian beliefs, that would have zero evidential value. None. Lots of people are willing to die for what they don't know is a lie. But these folks would have known if it's actually a lie. When 12 people are willing to die, and it's not just 12... Remember, Paul said there were 500 who saw the risen Christ on the same day. 
how do you explain that? What are they getting out of it? Look, we started off with this analogy I tried to paint for you of this guy, and we asked the question, can you trust him? I don't think so. That's why I wouldn't trust him. Now the question is, can we trust what's been written about Jesus? Well, we build this case circumstantially, the same way we build any cumulative case. We ask those four questions. Is it early enough? I've given you good reason to infer that that's reasonable. We didn't talk about this section at all. Because there's so much we could talk about, both in terms of archaeology, in terms of early ancient writers who wrote about the Christians and about Jesus, in terms of internal, external evidence in the Gospels. We didn't talk about any of it, because it's a big talk. I'll send it to you. But I think there's good reasons to believe this has been corroborated. We also talked about whether it's changed over time. Has it stayed accurate and honest over time? And that, I think, we can actually investigate by investigating the chain of custody. And finally, do these folks have a reason to lie to us? If so, tell me what it is. I got to a point where I said, you know, that is powerful for me. And I realized I was stuck. When people ask me now, why are you a Christian? I find myself saying, well, do you have some time, like two hours? Because I got to go through all of this. (laughs) That's a lot of stuff. That's why I don't answer that question on Twitter. So I have a question to ask you. If you're in this room right now and you're not a Christian, because you don't think there's enough evidence to believe Christianity is true. Really? Do you know anything about evidence? Have you looked at the evidence? Are you sure it's not that there's not enough evidence or just that you don't want there to be enough evidence? And if you are a Christian in this room, why are you a Christian? Think about it. Because you were raised this way? Because you've had some experience that has confirmed for you that this is true? Those are good reasons. And most of you would say it's one of those two kinds of reasons. But do you realize I have a family of all atheists except I have a stepmother and six brothers and sisters all raised Mormon. If you ask my Mormon family, why are you a Mormon? They will say, because I was raised that way or because I've had an experience that confirmed for me that Mormonism is true. You know, that's not true. That system is false. Yet your answers and my answers often sound just like theirs. That has to change. People say now, why are you a Christian? I can tell you one thing. I am not a Christian because it works for me. It does not work for me. This is the least convenient worldview in the country right now, and probably the least popular. The one thing you don't want to be right now, if I'm honest with you, I was saying this last night at dinner, is you don't want to be a white, male, heterosexual, Christian police officer. That's the whole five. That's the worst five you can be. Okay? And here I am, right? It's not a convenient worldview. It's a lot easier to throw the dart against the wall and just draw the bullseye around wherever the dart lands. That's what I used to do as an atheist. How are you doing today? Great. Well, how would I know? Because I said so. I was my own God. I'm also not a Christian because I was raised in a Christian family. I wasn't. I'm not a Christian because I was hoping for heaven or afraid of hell because I wasn't. I'm not a Christian because I had a train wreck life I was trying to change. I didn't. I'm a Christian because I looked at this evidence and I'm like, I'm stuck with it. It's true. I'm a Christian because it's true. But I also, if you ask me, why do you think it's true, I can explain it to you. 
Now, you've been in a series called Awesome. And next week, the God I just described, the reason why I believe God does exist and His name is Jesus, we're going to talk about here next week. If you're just being introduced to this concept, be sure to be here next week. We're going to talk about an awesome God. One last thing, though. I'm going to send you resources, and you've got this uh, flyer. I want everyone to open those up for me real quick. In order to get the resources, here's what you're going to do. It's not hard. You're going to take out this welcome card. You're going to put your name and your email address on the card and turn it in. And I'm then going to send you by Friday not only the entire video of this presentation, but all the PDF files, all the MP3s, Bible-sized inserts in color of the chain of custody and the early dating timeline. So you can put those in your Bible so you can make the case to others. Get it out right now. Fill it out. Do it right now. You ready? Just like Jimmy Fallon. I'm going to write down my name on the card. And I'm going to write my email address at the very least. These aren't going to go to me. The church is going to send a link that I'm going to send them to you. Okay? I'm going to say one last thing. I'm encouraged. You happen to be in a great place. Not many people even want to talk about the evidence for Christianity, even churches. But you happen to belong to one that does. But I'll bet you you come and go to this church and take that for granted. Because we all do, right? We've got summer coming. It's easy in summer to take things for granted. And that's why they're launching all these small groups. You know, I go out to all kinds of churches. You don't realize how robust this program is. You cannot talk about these issues, examine the evidence as an isolated Lone Ranger cowboy. We do life as Christians in community. Are you in a community? Are you just coming and going? Or are you connected to someone? Someone can actually ask you a question. Somebody who you can ask a question. Why haven't you joined a small group? Think about it. My favorite small group is this one right here. Blow up things and destroy things small group. That's the range and trap shooting group. You guys should join that one for sure. Also, young people, college age people, you have a group that starts on June 7th. Let me tell you something. I've been working with young people for my entire ministry life. I'm more interested in college students than any other group. It's like herding cats, okay? If you're in this room and you're college age, get plugged in. Don't use summer as an excuse. You want me to know what you worship? Show me your calendar. I'll tell you what you worship. Is part of your life and experience of this church community, is that on your calendar? I hope it is. Now, I'll be out in the hall. Unfortunately, we sold all the cold case Christianity books, but I wrote a book on creation, evolution, and design called God's Crime Scene. There's a few more of those left. I'll sign those. But sign up for the materials. I'm not here to sell you books. I'm here to help equip you. That's what Ben's heart is about. We don't do this every Sunday as a form of Christian entertainment. We do this in an attempt to equip you to do the work we're called to do. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we know that we need to be better stewards of our time. Help us to dig deep into the truth, to know why this is true, to be so utterly convinced by the evidence that we live differently, that we have more courage, more confidence, that we are bolder, 
and that we represent you well. Father, forgive us for those times we have stood silently and pretended like we weren't even yours. Help us to be your kids. We pray this in the name of your precious son, Jesus Christ. And everyone here says, amen. Thanks, guys.